You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC, and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley, one of the pastors here at King's Church, and we are kind of closing in on these final few chapters of Romans. We've actually been studying this for almost seven months now, and uh, we're we're kind of getting to the end of uh, Romans. And what we're going to find today, which is very interesting, is that Paul's going to write mainly about his own life. And today we're going to get an insight, a glimpse into the heart of Paul in this passage. Now, one thing I love about Paul, and um, I'm a big sports guy, but I, I love that it's, it's in the heart of football season right now. And I know some of you are, are football fans in the room, and, and I am as well, and it's a, it's a passion of mine, it's a hobby of mine. But one thing that's been so fun and unique about this year's uh, football season, both in the college and the NFL season, is, is that there are certain people in both the NFL and college game that have pioneered the game to new heights. And what I mean by that is they have drawn in new fandom to the game that it has never seen before, okay? So in the college game, uh, we start with none other than primetime himself, Deion Sanders, and his gold-plated headset. Um, Now, this guy is is one of a kind. What Deion Sanders has done is he has put a a university, sorry if you went to the University of Colorado, a university that was obscure for, for years and years and years on the map. He has brought new fandom in, in ways that no one ever could anticipate it. There are more celebrities on the sidelines of Colorado football games than there are coaches down there. Every week, DJ Cali, The Rock, Master P, Lil Wayne, Offset, I don't even know who that is. It doesn't matter. There are, there are celebrities every week coming and interested now in the game of college football because of his influence, because of his ambitions, because of his, really, his drive. And then we get to the NFL, and it's a match made in heaven, Right? Is it love or is it just good marketing? I don't know. We don't know yet. The, the, the story has yet to be written. But what we do know is that the Travis Kelsey Taylor Swift saga has brought more interest, particularly with the females, in the NFL than ever before. There are more people watching these games who could care less about football because of this. It has brought new fandom to the game in ways that we can never imagine. And we are so grateful that Travis Kelsey put Taylor Swift on the map. We are just so grateful for that this, year, this morning. Now, with respects to the Apostle Paul, I have to give him our respects this morning, that he could not be farther in many ways than both Deion Sanders and Travis Kelsey. But one thing that they do share is that they are pioneers in the work that they're doing. You see, just like these men have have really brought a new fandom and a new interest into the sport of football this year in in ways that we have not seen in the public eye, Paul made it his ambition, his drive, his purpose to pioneer so that the gospel message would go to new places, to new heights, to new people with hope that never heard before. It was his aim, it was his ambition, it was his life goal, it was his purpose to bring about the gospel in places that had never heard it before. To, to make it known to people who had never experienced the goodness of Jesus before. He pioneered in this work. And the reason we're going to see that Paul pioneered in this work, and the reason that it's important for us to understand this, is really our main idea of this passage today, is that the Christian faith, Christianity at its core, is a missional faith. 
that Christianity is a missional faith. And it begins with the message of Christianity itself, which is the motive for why we share it. Because in Christianity, we find something different than any other world religion. Instead of what we can do to get to God, to earn God's favor, to try to please God, the Christian faith is that God has been on mission for us. That God has sent his son for us. That he is engaged in a mission to redeem us so that we can be known by him and that we can worship him. And the Christian faith is one of joining and participating in that mission to share it, to go out, to spread it. And that is what Paul is going to show us here in this passage. That we do that because the Christian message is the hope of all nations. So we're going to see from Paul's heart today, and we're going to get a glimpse into his life and how that can impact the way we view our life in participating in what God is doing in this world. So we're going to look at it at the outline. We're going to see three things from Paul's life today. Number one, we're going to see his passion for sharing the faith. Then we're going to see his purpose, this ambition that is driving him, what he, what he feels like he is called to accomplish. And then finally, we're going to see his partnerships, that Paul's going to show us that we don't do this work alone. So let's go ahead and dive into the text. Before we get to verse 14, I, I just want to remind us that we are picking up in the middle of chapter 15 here, and, and that means we, we skipped over a few verses at the beginning of chapter 15. Uh, and in the end of chapter 14, as, as, as Bill was talking about last week, into chapter 15, we really see one of the big themes of the book of Romans, one of the main reasons why Paul is writing the book of Romans, and that is for gospel unity. One of the focuses of Paul writing to this church is that it's a church of both Jews and Gentiles. And, and what we see last week is one of the things about the Christian ethic is that, is that we see that we who are strong in the faith, Paul writes, he says, ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. In other words, all aspects of life, we look to Christ as both the example and the motivation for how we live with this kind of ethic, this kind of humility. And that kind of humility is birthed out of the fact that Jesus Christ himself did not please himself when he came to earth. In fact, he tells us in the Gospels that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so what Paul's gleaning from that and showing us is that Christian unity in the church means that both the strong and the weak, the Jew and the Gentile, are united together, which means that we can humble ourselves and welcome one another. We can humble ourselves and accept one another as Christ has welcomed us. And so Paul's building on this idea that unity is important in the church because when Jew and Gentile come together in faith, when the strong and the weak, when the rich and the poor come together, it is showing something of what God's purpose in the world was always intended to do, was to bring a people together from all nations. And then Paul leans into his passion for this calling. Look at verse 14. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So Paul begins here, and he gives a word of encouragement to this church. 
He says, I know I've said some things pretty boldly to you in this, in this letter of Romans, which we've done that. We've gone through some of the bold passages, some of the courageous passages in Romans. But he says, I want to encourage you that I'm, I'm confident that you're going to work out the implications of what I've written to you. That, that you will be filled with goodness, he says, and knowledge, and you'll be able to instruct one another. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I've given you the gospel. I've taught you the gospel. I've given you everything you need to live out of goodness and of knowledge and to instruct one another. And the reason he starts there is because in order for us to ever get to a place where we're able to share the gospel with others, we have to know the gospel. And so Paul's been building this this in the, the book of Romans. He's been telling them time and time again, this is what it looks like to know the gospel so that we can then go and share the gospel. But look how Paul wastes no time of sharing his passion for sharing the gospel. It's not a mere duty to Paul. He says, because of grace given to me by God, I have become a minister to the Gentiles in what he calls the priestly service of the gospel of God. Paul says this is a priestly ministry. Now, where else have we heard this priestly language by Paul? We were to go back a few chapters before this, we would see this in Romans chapter 12. Paul calls us to be living sacrifices. And in doing so, he's referencing the Old Testament in which the priest would bring a sacrifice, and, and there were really two types of sacrifices he would bring. He would bring a sacrifice to atone for sin, a sin offering, and then he would bring a sacrifice, a burnt offering of thanksgiving, of, of service to the Lord. And what Paul is, is pointing out in Romans 12 is that when we look in the New Testament, we see that Christ is the fulfillment of that sacrificial system that we look to Christ now as the one who forgives us of our sins. We look to Christ now, the one who paid our debt once and for all, that we don't have to keep sacrificing bulls and goats to atone for sin. That has been done in Christ. And because of that, we can now be living sacrifices each and every day, offering ourselves to God. And Paul builds on this. He says, part of the priestly ministry that God has given me is to see my daily offering as sharing the faith with the Gentiles. You see, what he's saying here is it's not just merely a duty to share my faith with others. It is an act of worship, that daily I am offering this to God. Out of a service to him, I am offering daily this idea of sharing my faith, of bearing witness to Jesus Christ. It is an offering. It is an act of worship. It is a way of giving praise to God. In essence, what Paul is reminding us here is that it's not an optional duty of the Christian life to evangelize. It is an act of worship. It is not something that we add on to our Christian life. It is central to who we are as Christians. That daily, as we walk in faith, we are offering worship by sharing and bearing testimony to all Christ has done in our lives. So Paul has this great passion for this. So much so that he says this, that what matters in the end is that Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God and what I've said and done. Notice Paul talks about what he desires mostly is that people would be obedient to God. Which means he's not just looking for conversion experiences. He's looking for people who are transformed by Jesus, completely transformed. Now think about this for a moment. The Apostle Paul is one of the, he is the greatest theologian ever. But notice what he is centering in on here is, is his work as a theologian is not what he is most passionate about. That's not what drives him. What drives him to the core of his heart is seeing people pass from death to life in his ministry. That is what drives him, which means as much as we've studied in the book of Romans, if we miss the heart of Paul here, then we miss Romans, okay? 
if we miss his heart to see people's lives changed by the gospel, then we've missed the whole point of why he's been teaching us the gospel. Now, how's this applied to us today? Well, we should ask the question, do we feel this same passion of sharing our faith as an act of worship like Paul? Do we share in his passion? Now, it's appropriate for us to, to see that we may not be skilled or have the special gifts of evangelism like Paul, and none of us share in his calling to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but he does serve an example for us. And in his example, we should ask ourselves today, are we zealous of making disciples of all nations as a church? Do we get excited about the idea that we get to, to give an answer for the hope that we have within us when someone asks? Do we see this as a daily offering to God? Now, he mentions that he has a desire to share his faith in both word and deed, he says, as God powerfully works in him and even miraculously works in him through signs and wonders. Now, this is important for us because it means that sharing our faith is not simply something we do with our words. It's not simply something we do with our intellect. It's something we do with all of our life. And we see this play out in the early church, actually. I, I was reading a, a book about, uh, from a historian, Alan uh, Kreider, recently, and he, he was talking about how sociologists and historians estimate that over three centuries, the first three centuries of the early church, the church grew by 40% each decade, okay? Amazing growth, just exponential growth in the early church. Now, why is this important? Well, when you look at the culture of the early church, it was one of persecution, 30 to 40 years after Jesus' resurrection, we have from, from the persecution of Nero onward for those centuries, the church was persecuted. And, and his point was simply this. That means that, that mostly Christian services like the one we're having today, they were closed to the public. That you didn't have seekers and people interested coming and hearing a pastor share about the faith with them. And, in fact, he, he points out that uh, deacons, <coughs> excuse me, deacons, one of their earliest uh, ministries was really that of like a bouncer. <laughs> uh, they, they, would, they would stand at the door and make sure that they knew the people coming in. Because if someone were to come in that they didn't know, they could tell the authorities and they could die for that, right? And so you have this early church that saw this explosion of growth, but it wasn't because of, of professional Christians who were sharing the faith. H how did they grow? Well, they grew because individual Christians shared with their coworkers and with their family members each and every day. You see, what we notice from the early church and what Paul is expounding upon when he talks about word and deed here is that, look, evangelism and sharing our faith is much more relational than it is just informational. It's much more about the relationships we build with other people than it's just about how we can tell it with an elo eloquent presentation, right? In the early church, you didn't see professionals doing this. They didn't have books written on evangelism. They didn't have mission boards. They didn't have conferences. They were doing it through relationships, which means if that we're going to be passionate about sharing our faith, then we need to have real non-superficial relationships with people in the city. Yeah. That, that means we have to have real non-superficial relationships with people in the city. Because even in a city like D.C., it is possible that all our relationships that are real be with Christians, believe it or not. It is possible that we can still live that way and have superficial relationships with everybody at our work and, and friends and neighbors. And, and what's happening is we actually don't have integrity in the mission in the city. We don't have relational integrity when we do that. But when we have non-superficial, real relationships with people who do not follow Jesus in the city, 
that guess what happens? Our faith has to be talked about. It has to be because it's a part of who we are. And we have real relationships with people, it will seep out in conversation because it's who we are. It's how we act and how we don't act. It's how we overcome things in life. It is an essence of our word and deed. It integrates in every part of our life. It's where we have real relationships with people, then God could use us in a way to share our faith with others. See, Paul saw his passion for sharing faith as incarnational, meaning that it wasn't just about what he said with his lips, but he embodied it in his attitude and his relationships. So when people saw Paul, every time they saw him, they saw what peered out of his life was the gospel. And the same could be true of us. Now, it's not just that we see Paul's passion here, but we see that he has a very intentional purpose. Let's pick up in verse 20. Paul says, and thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. See, Paul is driven here by a very particular purpose, uh, an ambition so strong that he says in verse 22 that this is the reason I haven't been able to come to you in Rome. Although he says in verse 23, I have longed for many years to come to you. So here, here's, the, here's the point. If you long for years and years and years to do something, but that you don't do it, then something else more powerfully is driving you. That's what Paul's getting at here. That something more powerfully is driving him to do something that he feels called to do. And he says here that what's driving him, what's keeping him from going Rome, uh, to Rome is that he has work to be finished in the regions of Jerusalem to Illyricum, which is basically the Adriatic Sea. And he says, I, I need to complete this. I have a purpose. I'm driven by this, and it's keeping me from seeing you. Now, how, what is this purpose? What is this ambition? How do we have something like this in life, this kind of holy uh, intentionality in the way we live, this kind of purpose-driven life? What that simply is is simply something that you want to do that God also wants you to do. That's as simple as it is. Paul is seeing that there's something that he desires to do that God also wants him to do. And it's, it's so, such a strong desire in his life, it's such a strong uh, purpose in his life, that it's actually keeping him from doing other things that he also wants to do, mainly go to Rome in this moment. You see, Paul had a confidence in his living to say no to some opportunities because he was confident and clear what God had called him to do. Meaning that he could turn down some really good ideas for his life because he was focused on God's purposes for his life. That's the ambition that he lived with. That's the, the, the purpose that he had. Now, his purpose and his ambition here is unique to him, right? He, he's not saying that we're all called to go to places where Christ has not been preached. That's, that's actually not what he's saying here. In fact, we wouldn't see that uh, in, in the New Testament, right? We see the Apostle Peter. Where was he called to? He was called to stay in Jerusalem, and Paul actually affirms that. Uh, Apollos, who worked with Paul, was called to actually build on the work that Paul had done. And even to the Romans who Paul is writing to the church in Rome. He's not telling all of them to quit their jobs and to follow him into these unknown places. This is specific to Paul's purpose. But where does he get this purpose from? Maybe that's the question we should ask. 
How does he find this type of purpose in his life? Well, look what he says in verse 21. He quotes Isaiah 52. Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And here's what's amazing about that. It, it would make most sense that Paul would root his purpose in his conversion experience. Because in Acts chapter 9, Paul meets the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then in Acts 26, he actually tells us that when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus gave him a calling to be a light to the Gentiles. He heard from Jesus, from the living Jesus, that he was called to be a light to the Gentiles. But that's not what he says here in Romans 15. He doesn't say my ambition, my purpose to go to places where Christ has not been known is because Jesus Christ himself called me to do that on the road to Damascus. He says, I have this ambition. I've been, I'm driven because of what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 52. Why does that matter? Because what Paul is doing is he is rooting his purpose in God's purposes in this world. He is rooting his purpose in God's overall plan that's unfolding in Scripture. And this is beautiful for us to see here today. He's not just referring to his experience that he had, his conversion experience on the Damascus Road. He's, he's referring to God's written word. And the reason that's important for us today is because if we're going to understand our purpose in this life, we may not have a, a Damascus Road experience, but we do have his word. And we too can root our purposes there. So the question becomes for us, how do, we, how do we know this purpose? How do we know our ambition in our lives? What comes from knowing Jesus, but it also is rooted and empowered by the word of God. So we, like Paul, have to stop and ask ourselves the question today. The life goals that we have that are driving us, the purposes that we have in life right now, do they line up with God's word? Because God doesn't, he's not gonna give us ambitions in life that are pointless. He's not going to give us things that drive us that are self-exaltating. Notice what Paul does here. He looks and he says, in God's word, I see this. This is the unfolding plan of God, and I'm going to root my purposes and my ambition in what God is doing in this world. So you can have some great ambitions in life. I want to advance my career in this city so that I can invest in making good policy that influences our country. I want to own my own business one day so that I can have more freedom Maybe make my own rules, right? I, I, I want to I get married one day so I can have a family and raise kids. I want to have a good living so that I can take care of that family. These are good things. They're not bad. They're, they're, they're not bad passions or, or ambitions to have in this life. But the point that Paul is teaching us here is that we have to start with God's purposes in this world if we're ever going to discover ours. We have to see that God is doing something in this world in our understanding of our ambitions and the ways in which we have passions in this world to, to have a purpose, begin there. It's Christopher Wright, he, he actually uh, is an Old Testament scholar who wrote a wonderful book about the mission of God. He says it this way, the question is not for us to ask, where does God fit into the story of my life? The real question is for us to ask daily, where does my little life fit in the great story of God's mission? Because when we understand that, then even when our plans don't go according to plan, even when our purposes may veer off course to how we thought they would go, we can still trust that God is using them. Maybe a great illustration of this is uh, from uh, my favorite Star Wars movie. Now, um, one of you in this room, I'm not going to point you out, Emily, um, reminded me recently that I am a Lord of the Rings person only, and I do not quote from Star Wars up here. That is Ben's job. But I'm going to do it anyway today, okay? Because I have watched some of the Star Wars movies. Um, my favorite movie is Rogue One. And it's really, a, yeah, yeah, I got some, some lovers out there with that, all right? 
Uh, Rogue One is a tragedy. It, spoiler alert, everyone dies in the end. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, Rogue One is, is, is unique in that, that it's a tragedy, yes, but it, it examines the backstory of one scene, actually, in Star Wars Episode Four. Basically, what happens is the rebel fighters, they, they fight literally to the death uh, to get the, the plans to the Death Star uh, to the rebellion so that one day, this guy named Luke Skywalker will use the force and blow it up, okay? That's the plot. But this story, if you just look at it as Rogue One, it ends tragically, right? But when you look at it in the bigger story of the, the, the Star Wars saga, you see that it actually ends victoriously. It does not change the way we view Rogue One then. Because if Rogue One's all that we have, then yes, it's a tragedy. But if we see the bigger picture, then even though it's sad, it's a part of a story of victory. And this is how Paul viewed his life. He saw his life as part of a grand story that superseded the outcome of his own small one. Which means that his ambitions and his purposes, even if they didn't turn out like he planned it, he knew God would always use it to achieve success in his purposes. And you know what? That's exactly what happened in Paul's life. Paul has an ambition to take the gospel to Spain, but guess what? He never makes it there. He gets to Rome, but in Rome, he's in prison, and ultimately, he's beheaded there. But you know what? Paul knew that could happen, but he still trusted God with his purpose because he seconded his story in life to the grander story of what God was doing, and he knew that it would end in victory, which means that no sacrifice was wasted which means that Paul could look at his life, and even if tragedy came, even if the purposes that he thought he was living for took a turn, he could still say it was worth it because he knew it would end in triumph because he was rooting his purpose in life in God's purposes in this world. Do we all want to live like that? Where we can say that no matter what purpose we have in life, we know that it will end in victory because of Christ because we can see our lives through the lens of eternity and what God is doing in this world. And so today, if you want to know what is, what is your purpose, right? What, what is the ambition that's driving you? What is God's will for your life? It starts by asking yourself, what is God doing in this world? What is his purposes? How is he working? And then like Paul, what are the unique ways that God has shaped you and distinct gifts he's given you to participate in his purposes in this world? Now we have to continue here. And we feel, we see the end here that, that Paul has these partnerships in his mission. He's got a purpose. He's got passion. But he has other people in his life. He's not alone in this. Verse 25, he says, at present, he says, however, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. So he's making a, a, a turn to Jerusalem before he gets to Rome. He says, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have come to share in their ble- spiritual blessings. They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and I have delivered to them what, I ha- what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the Lord Jesus, brothers and sisters, by the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit, the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. 
So Paul, he has a specific calling and purpose to take the gospel to cities where it had not previously been known. But he wasn't alone in that work. And neither are any of us today. We may not find ourselves going to remote places of this world with the gospel, but we can also partner, we can all partner in the gospel work as the church. And that's what we see here. That the church is coming alongside Paul and they're actively engaging in this role. That they are participating in the mission with him, but they're also doing it through financial support and prayer, he sees. He's planning on going to Spain and on the way he stops by Jerusalem. And what does he say here? He's, he says that there's been a financial collection among the Gentiles in Macedonia for these Jewish Christians. We can read about that in 1 Corinthians 16. You can see that in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. This collection was given because there were, there were needs among the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. There was an impoverty. There, there may have been a drought. Whatever it was, there was a need there. And the church, the Gentiles in Macedonia decided they would give to help support this work in Jerusalem. Now, this is important for us because it's a reminder, again, of the unity of the church. All going back to Romans chapter 1 that we see this beautiful unity that is the, the gospel that unifies us, is the power of salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, to bring salvation to the whole world. So what we see here is that these Gentile Christians are, are feeling a debt, he says, a spiritual debt to give and support the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Why is that? Because we look at the history of, of, of God's people and redemption, we see that in the Old Testament, God chose Israel for a reason. It It, it mattered. And he did that with his eyes toward the Gentiles that they would one day be grafted in. And so he says, we should be thankful for Israel. We should, be thank- we should have a, a gratitude for our Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul says. See, the monetary gift that they were giving was much more than just money. It was showing a, a, a gratitude that they were now, now able to share the spiritual blessings of being grafted into the family of God. Paul says that we should be grateful for the grace of God that has come to us. And, and we express that through our giving. See, our attitude <clears throat> in giving tells a lot about us. Very little in life expresses what we care about more clearly than what we do with our money, right? Again, this financial gift showed a, a gratitude beyond just monetary value. It was a gratitude of God's grace. And our giving, even as a church today, shows us our fellowship with one another, our partnership in this work. It expresses that. And so look, even if you're here for a short period of time, I know how easy it is for us to come into a church and leave a church and not feel like it's our family. But we are a family. And whether you're here for for a few months or a few years, you're part of this family. And so when we give, we're able to say, no, this isn't their ministry, this isn't their ministry, this isn't their church. No, this is our church. This is our mission. This is what God is doing through us for the sake of another and that's what's so beautiful here is that one church is giving for the sake of another church. And they're doing it because they see that they have a stake in the ministry of what God is doing. And so we give. We are partnering in the gospel work. We are saying that we are a part of this together. But notice Paul also says that this church is partnering in prayer. He says, join me in my struggle in praying for me. It's a beautiful reminder today for us as believers that we can always help each other out by praying. We can always come alongside each other, even if we don't know the person in prayer. We can always give up our time in prayer for those who are giving up their lives in other parts of the world. And look, as we prayed earlier, we have seen glimpses of evil this week, and it should bring us to our knees in prayer. We have seen destruction this week, and it should lead us to prayer. 
But I think the Apostle Paul would also want us to pray specifically for Israel and Palestine, for the Christians who are serving there to advance the gospel work. That he would also want us to pray for those who are in very hard places because although we may not be joining them on mission today, we are always on mission with them when we are on our knees praying. That's what Paul's point is here. That even if we're not there with them, we are a part of what they are doing when we pray. So let's conclude here. Paul reminds us that the gospel is the hope of the nations today. It, is this, it has this insatiable appetite, which is so beautiful, that the gospel knows no boundaries or borders in this world. It breaks down every divide. It crosses every human divide that we could ever set up. It breaks down every wall that divides us and unites all people as one family. That is the hope of the nations, the gospel, the salvation. And Paul is telling us today as a church, we get the privilege to participate in that. But today, we cannot participate in that until we meet Jesus. We can't, let other, we can't help other people see Jesus until we have met Jesus, until we have come face to face with him, until we see our need for him, until we have seen the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, we start there. We start there to see that Jesus has been on mission for us, that we are the object of his mission. Which means today that we can take comfort that not only are we not alone in this work, but that it's not on our shoulders. Because at the end of the day, as we go out on mission, it is never us and it will never be us that will change the world. When Jesus calls us to be salt and light in this world, what he is teaching us and what he's reminding us is the same thing Paul reminds us here, that it's the power of God that works through us. And in fact, Jesus is the salt, not us. We're the shaker, right? We're only salty as he fills us. That Jesus is the light of the world. We're only going to be luminaries as much as he fills our lamps with oil. That we are like the moon and Jesus is the sun. That all our light in this world is derivative from him. Which means that we come to the table today to get close to our Savior. Because when we're close to our Savior and we draw near to him, then and only then can we rest in his power to work through us today. We can rest in his provision of salvation, in his presence that can allow us to accomplish his purposes in this world. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.